You're listening to Agency Dealmasters, brought to you by Bridge. This interview is brought to you by Worldwide Partners, a global network of more than 75 independent agencies in over 40 countries who support the world's most heralded brands. To learn how Worldwide Partners can help you reimagine growth for your business, then visit worldwidepartners.com. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Alex Bennett-Grant is the founder and CEO of We Are Pi. At age 40 under 40, campaign global agency of the year finalist for 2021. At age and creative pool, small agency of the year for 2018, 2019 and 2020. Just an astonishing string of achievements. They've created some phenomenal, impactful work for clients like Heineken, Ted, Under Armour, Lego, BBC, just go down the list of the biggest brands in the world. Their work is all about creating cultural change. And like me, he's had his own shows with identity, trying to create a career for himself in what is still a, a white male dominated industry. So we talk about everything from Black Lives Matter and where we are right now in the spring of 2022. Has that moment passed? Have we capitalized on it? Where are we right now? building diverse teams and the impact that has on creative work. We talk about the roller coaster ride of the last 11 years, building the agency from scratch to what it is now, one of probably the preeminent creative agencies in the world. Um, we talk about making an impact, Biggie Smalls, legacy, and just like everything else in between. This is just an absolute masterclass on all things creativity, identity, and culture. By the way, stick around until the end where you'll hear my chat with John Harris, the CEO of Worldwide Partners. They're actually the sponsors of this series. He shares his thoughts about the value the network delivers to independent agencies and their members. If you are remotely interested in anything to do with cultural legacy, then this is an absolute must-listen-to conversation. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Alex Bennett-Grant. My name is Nathan Anibaba, and this is Agency Dealmasters. Agency Dealmasters is a series of conversations with world-class agency leaders building great agency businesses. I believe everyone belongs in the growth journey, and this show is dedicated to the stories and the lessons of ambitious agency builders of all types by examining their history, competitive advantage, and what makes them tick. Now, let's jump in. Alex Bennett-Grant is the founder and CEO of We Are Pi, a creative innovation consultancy founded on International Pi Day. He has won many global awards, including At Age 40 Under 40. They've been campaign global agency of the year finalist in 2021. At Age and Creative Pool, small agency of the year 2018, 2019 and 2020, just to name a few. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Alex Bennett-Grant, welcome. To agency deal masters. Thank you so much. When you say it like that, mm, I feel good. <laughs> it's all true, right? You haven't made any of yourself, have you? It's all true. Uh, <laughs> it's all true, and there's so much more. But uh, I don't want to brag. Well, we'll we'll get into that in the interview. So um, I've been looking forward to speaking to you for a, a long time because your background in history is is just super fascinating. You're you're an Englishman in Amsterdam. So you've held several roles in TV, 
at McCann, Wyden and Kennedy. Uh, you lived in Brighton, had some stints in Soho. Um, and now you're setting up, you've set up We Are Pie in Amsterdam. How do you go from Brighton and Soho to Amsterdam? Well, with a lot of uh, bumps along the way and a lot of joy and, uh, and self-discovery on the back end. I was born in London. I was born in Highbury. Um, grew up opposite Arsenal. Um, go on, Arsenal. Uh, um, Great stadium. And uh, <laughs> Lost its way. Lost its way a little bit uh, as a stadium. Uh, the team has uh, got so much potential. And, uh, and then, you know, we, my parents moved down to Brighton, grew up in Brighton, which was a great place to grow up. Uh, a lot of freedom, quite safe. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, I went to university in London and um, I just about got into university. I, I wasn't very good at school. I was quite dyslexic. I was caught quite late. So I, was, I had terrible grades, not really enough grades to get into college. I, I think I, I got like five GCSEs. It was just about enough. And then I sort of started to slowly get my momentum at college when I was focusing on courses I was interested in. Uh, I had a sensible girlfriend who was a studious person, so that helped. Um, and and I and I sort of it was unexpected that I would go into university. It was a last minute thing through clearing in the UK, um, and I got into Westminster, which was an average to poor university, but they had quite a good media degree. And that was that was real. I started to sort of find my flow um in education um when i was focused on things that i liked and also in an environment where i could where speaking and, and debating was valued you know in early school days that stuff has no value it's considered to be rude so the, uh, the further i got and luckily luckily i'd made those steps into higher education because it wasn't it wasn't a given um the more i found my flow and and then yeah soho was just you know i was in harrow and soho was in the center of town and that's where things were happening and uh, but yeah, I had no grounding though at all in London. So it was just knocking on doors, trying to find running jobs, trying to earn a living. Couldn't really earn a living, if I'm honest. And all of that sort of hunting and gathering of, of, of trying to build up my skills and earn a living got me into advertising. And, and it was just a sort of complete random coincidence that I ended up in Amsterdam. There was no clear path apart from hard work and open mind. So tell us that story then. How, how did you end up in Amsterdam? Well, I was working in TV production in Soho. I was um, tr trying to sort of follow what my degree had taught me and see what careers that would open up. And having studied media, that for me just meant entertainment media, like uh, TV production, things like that. But there's no money in that. And, and, and I think I was earning about £9,000 living in Islington with my auntie. So yeah, I couldn't live off that and I didn't have any other support uh, to sort of fund my existence in London. So I basically couldn't live in London. I then transitioned to work in TV sales, which was double the money, £16,000. I was like, yes, I'm living now. Uh, but I was terrible at that job and I didn't like it. Uh, so bad, in fact, that I was actually responsible for booking Kanye West's first album and, uh, and forgot to book it because I didn't really know what I was doing. And so I got, I got in trouble for that. Uh, sorry, Kanye. Um, I think he's okay with it. I think I think his career it took his own path, right? It, yeah. I tried to stop him, but he's uh, he found his own way. <laughs> uh, anyway, so at the beginning really was just about applying the things I knew to the places that I could find to try and earn a living. There was nothing more to it than that, and I, and, and and frankly, I wasn't I wasn't earning enough money to survive in the, in the city. And then I found out that the people that made the ads that we were 
we were booking on Channel 5 at the time um, through sales, were these advertising agencies. And I thought, oh, maybe that's something more interesting, creating the actual content, not just um, selling space for it. So I found out about advertising agencies and I was told I would never get in because I didn't go to a proper university and do the right type of degree. But that sort of inspired me to try harder when I got into McCann Erickson. And that was great. That was a great training ground. You know, it was a big company. They had lots of process, a lot of training, good management. And so I actually did quite well there. Not less, I don't know how well I performed, but I did quite well as a person. I felt good about my role there. But after a few years, inevitably, I sort of got a bit um, restless and I started looking for my sort of what I call my second proper job, as in the first job at McCann, I consider my first job because I had, I had a proper manager, I got proper training, and there was something like a career there. You know, before that, it was just all sort of get what you can take. And I was looking for my second big step and, and probably a bit of a pay rise as well. And uh, in London, I started to realize that I didn't really fit in the higher I got. At the bottom, it was fine because I was enthusiastic. I was smart enough to pick up things along the way and they were supportive. But the higher I got in the organization, it just got so clear that I would have to become someone I'm not. I'd have to become the guy that goes and plays golf, uh, which, you know, nothing against golf, but it's just not my thing. And, and, that, and that was a very white environment. And I was just like, oh, I'm going to have to become this sort of upper class British white guy. <laughs> very far from who I am. And I, and I won't lie, I was trying to do that. You know, I was trying to figure out how do I become them so I can get into the inner circle of London advertising and survive. But also me. I don't know if I was trying to become me, actually, if I'm honest. I was just trying to become them because them was the only thing that would, there was no other path. It was success, like, right. Yeah, there was no other path of success as a young black kid, like no, no chance. And then this opportunity came up at a place called Wyden Kennedy in London. And I went for the interview, didn't get the job, I wasn't qualified, but they called me back a few months later and said they had another job on another account. And it turned out to be in Amsterdam. And I was really, at that point, starting to really feel like the pressure of fitting in and not fitting in. And when I got to Amsterdam for my interview, my goodness, I was like, this is it. This is, everyone's an outsider here. Everyone's got to find their way. People are coming in from the US, Asia, Africa, all over Europe. No one I'm working here in this environment is from here. And it leveled the playing field and it liberated me. And I felt wonderful about that, you know. And suddenly for the first time in my career, instead of asking where I'm from, people are assuming I'm from the UK. <laughs> and they're asking me what, what I'm up to instead, you know, it changed the conversation. So in an area where there were lots of misfits and different people from different places, you felt like that's where you belonged. Yeah, absolutely. And I still do to this day. And, you know, it's been a long time. I've been here more than 14 years. And I think there's this sort of liberation. Uh, if you can find your way as an expat, being an expat is strange. You know, it has liberating factors. It also has sort of disorientating factors like you're never home. You're never completely settled, which is something I like. But for a lot of people, it's a bit like, you know, this is only temporary, uh, which is okay. Um, but for me, I found a place where, you know, on its best day, it's it's fully international all the time. And then, of course, eventually I started the business and that meant that I could double down on that international feeling, like, you know, and sort of really feel like surround myself with people that are just coming from all over walks of life. So, yeah, that's that's certainly been something that's helped me 
find myself, to your point earlier, help me find myself. Worldwide Partners is one of the largest networks of independent marketing services agencies in the world. They offer brand marketeers and agencies a global platform to reimagine their growth. They've got over 75 agencies in over 40 different countries. And that means that brands and agencies get access to global talent with localized insight to create impactful campaigns that are delivered locally, nationally, and with international scale. Learn more at worldwidepartners.com. I've really been looking forward to this interview because in your opening kind of preamble, we've touched on so many things that I want to get into for the, for the conversation, belonging, diversity, what we can do to improve that in the agency world and on the brand side as well. Uh, what you've been doing with We Are Pi and kind of, I guess, the founding motivation behind it. And, and you're so socially motivated. There are so many things here that we can riff on and go into. Just before we get into all of that good stuff, though, just give everyone listening an overview of the agency. Um, you've been in the business now for 11 years. You've you set it up in 2008. Just give us an idea of number of employees, clients, the work that you do. Um, just give us an overview of the of the business, and then we'll and then we'll use that as a jumping off point to talk about everything else that you're doing. For sure, for sure. So, first point of correction: 2011. 2011. Uh, 2011. What happened in 2008? In 2008, I was at Widen Kennedy. I'd been there for a year. I uh, my grandmother passed away, and I met my uh, uh, future wife. So different things okay. happened in 2008. Okay. I've, ri- I've <laughs> written down important. 2008. Right. For some reason, I've got down 2008 and I'm, I'm sticking to it. Another small thing that happened in 2008, obviously the crisis, uh, which, which isn't a small part of the story because that's when, um, not exactly then, but that's that sort of probably kicked off the rumblings of what become We Are Pie. Because um, I've been at... I'd been at Wyden Kennedy for a year at that point. I was having a great time. I was traveling all over the world. I was making these mega gigantic ad campaigns for EA Sports FIFA and Heineken and Lego and all sorts of wonderful stuff and making friends along the way. But in 2008, um, obviously the agency was affected heavily by the crisis, probably, you know, 2009, beginning of that year. And you start to notice that clients... uh, needs are changing and um and i was just about senior enough to sort of be able to interpret that you know like what we were selling at the time the form of it the execution of it was 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 getting a bit problematic the creativity where i was working was phenomenal the the, the culture was phenomenal but just the clients were under pressure right and so it started to sort of see this idea that you know how do you take all of the sort of strength of creative and strategy and apply it more broadly to different places uh, to help the clients in different ways. And, and if you cut to, you know, a year and a half later, 2010, uh, had a bit more experience and stuff and, and really starting to wonder what it would look like to, to sort of take my next step. Um, and, and that's sort of where We Are Pi came from. It was of me, myself and a couple of friends uh, working at Widen, um, again, having a good time. So no complaints there, but just, Sort of maybe maybe it was maybe it was the liberation actually. Some companies are born out of frustration and anger, but I think there was a certain amount of liberation we had. Um, you know, Amsterdam is a quite a sort of free free flowing place, and 
And maybe we have the safety in a way to, to, to dream. And I think that can also be a, 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 a different type of motivator, you know, just sort of be, being comfortable enough to be like, but what if, what if, what if we did this? What if we did that? So cut to, cut to a year or so later, we founded the business. Um, we turned 11 on Monday and thank you very much. Uh, I found out we were a Pisces as a company on Monday as well. Someone told me that in a meeting that I thought that was quite cool. And um, we worked with uh, Heineken, uh, Nike, uh, Pepsi. We worked with uh, Uber. We worked with a bunch of other brilliant brands. Um, You're going to get and, calls from those brands now saying, uh, how did you miss us off the list? What, what about me? What about me? <laughs> um, and, uh, oh, Amazon. Sorry, Amazon. <laughs> and easy, uh, easy to forget. Well, so big that, you know, they're all, <laughs> they're all seeing, all, all hearing. Right. Um, and, uh, but it's been a journey to get to the level where we're working with brands like that. You know, we, we, uh, we started off with Lego as a founding client back in 2011 when the business was officially founded, um, which was a real gift. Um, ironically, I'm working with them again now or, or, or friends, friends I made there um, 11 years later. Um, and, and then we started working with TEDx, which was kind of very new, exciting at the time. And so between those two, two clients, we, it wasn't about the revenue so much as we were building the identity of the brand uh, of our brand through working with them. So if we're working with Lego, we're working on this sort of front end innovation work, which was really exactly what we wanted to be doing when I said that we take the strategy and creativity and apply it to new places. So we were developing new product concepts um, with them and their team out of Denmark. And that felt like, yeah, that's totally where we want to be. We want to be contributing to the business in a whole new way. With TEDx, it was all about give and get. You know, we needed a network because small agencies always talk about having a network, but really it's always a bit, you know, BS. And we wanted to have a real ideas network. So we thought if we give a lot to that community through campaigns, we'll get a lot because we'll meet people from all over the world who are really in the big idea space. And we wanted to be in that space. And then we had Deloitte as another early client, which was a whole different world of like understanding consultancies. And, and again, that sort of stuff comes back later as we evolved our business and realized that, you know, the likes of the innovation and creativity from Lego, the ideas community and sort of being connected to culture from, from Ted and that sort of like hardcore business consultancy mindset from Deloitte, those principles still very much apply to the business we have today. Can I say three very different businesses, Lego, Ted and Deloitte? Yeah. Um, you couldn't find probably more different businesses <laughs> than if you, if you tried. But what you're saying is the culmination of kind of what makes all of those businesses great ultimately ended up in kind of the the fulcrum of, of We Are Pie and kind of what you're all about. Totally. And it's, and, it's and it's some sort of innovation, some sort of using creativity in innovative ways. You know, it's very clear when you think about creative innovation, when you think about Lego. Uh, it's, it's, it, frankly, for me, it's very clear when you think about creativity and innovation, when you talk about TEDx and TED, you know, like they are literally the ideas spreading community and platform. And although at the time it would have been a stranger comment to, to refer to Deloitte in that way, if you think about the way they've evolved, and, and what they're focused on now is, you know, innovation for sure. And, and they've embraced creativity too. So, yeah, at the beginning, it was just sort of um, exploratory for us, very much so, like uh, trying to sort of uh, figure out the type of work we want to do and the places we want to be. But if I look back and think about it now, I'm like, wow, that was, we were lucky, man. Like those were really defining relationships that really helped to sort of 
push us towards doing more innovative work and not just rest on our laurels and sort of just uh, end up making traditional advertising. And if I were to pick up the phone now and speak to one of your clients, let's say Lego, and, and, and ask them, why do you work with We Are Pi? What are they likely to say? Um, well, I've asked them this question multiple times over the years, them and other clients too. And just partly, sometimes out of a panic, like, oh, <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> Who are we? You know, like speaking to like clients who I have a close relationship with, right. just to make sure like to level set. Uh, also just to sort of build relationships. And I think that generally what I hear back is, hey, look, you guys are great at big bang concepts and big bang creative ideas and innovation, you know, like thinking outside the box, thinking about um, where creativity can make a difference in, in different parts of the brand and the business. Um, and they'd also probably say, hey, you guys are not, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the perfect partner for like incremental tactics and, you know, you know, there's, there's or like, you know, sort of, specific channels like you're not you're not a PR agency you're not like a social media agency and so over the years as we've sort of navigated to try and figure out where our sweet spot is we've had loads of bumps in the road and like we've we've tried to do this and that and tried to expand in strange ways all through a combination of curiosity and commercial incentive uh, but in the end it always boils down to like look we're great at creative and strategic innovation. We're great at big bang thinking. Uh, let's focus there. Um, that's where we have fun. That's where the clients, that's where they're coming for. Um, and, and in the end, once you get that rhythm and clarity, you can just enjoy it more, you know, and you know also what to say yes to, what to say no to, you know, and you can sleep at night. So you say, quote, diversity and innovation are linked. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that in the context of creativity. You know, you, you just said a moment ago that Lego would say that you're, you know, great creative agency, you apply creativity, big bang thinking to kind of what you do. How much of that is influenced by your diverse team, um, the makeup of the agency itself? And, and talk a little bit about that phrase, you know, diversity and innovation. Absolutely. So um, I'm, I'm a very firm believer um that diversity is 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 like a superpower for creative innovation um i mean let's not get it twisted of course i'm going to say that because i'm a brown kid from bright right <laughs> so, I, was, you know. I was just going to say that i was just so, going to say that i'm definitely biased uh for self interest uh to find a role for myself in the industry right um so yeah, so that's that's definitely a starting point. But um, no, I I tell you where I saw it really come to life. It's in Amsterdam. I saw it come to life in Amsterdam. So in London today, everyone would agree. You know, like London's got diverse creative industries. Um, I, I haven't worked in the in the city for, for for a very long time. But like whenever I go back, I'm like, whoa, look at you guys. <laughs> you know, where did all of these black and brown people come from? Like, when did you let them in the door? Like, right, there's know, a lot of them. People look at me like, yeah, of course, man. But I'm like, wow, that's <laughs> that's new. You know, that's really new. Right. Uh, and, and that's important because, therefore, there wasn't really any evidence that diversity was important for creativity when I worked in London. 
because London was a creative capital of the world and there was no diversity and it was still thriving, right? So where's the, what's the point? But when I got to Amsterdam and every, and it's not just, so let's be straight, Amsterdam, when you walk into the city, it doesn't look as diverse as London. I'm not going to lie. You know, you, you come out of the central station and it's, and it's European. And so it's, it, it, it's got a lot of uh, cultures uh, and nationalities, but it, it's not like when you walk into London, it's like, oh, this is, you know, this feels like home. Mm. But, but culturally, it, it's, it's incredible. You've got, like I say, you've got Americans, you've got Asians, you've got Africans and lots of Europeans all working together, bringing their different culture to the table. So what that means is, and this is what we try to do every day at Pi, is it just means, first of all, that all your cultural shortcuts don't work, right? So if you and I are two uh, middle-aged white men in London in a creative department, and we've got all of our creative cultural shortcuts, right? We all have the same video games, the same music, the same, we can't grow up in the same culture, we've got the same lingo, and so if I tell a joke, you laugh. If I refer to a sort of point in history, you get it. And if we ideate together, we come up with the same idea and we both think it's good and we go. Right. And, and that's fine because your client, probably also a middle-aged or white guy as well, and he's going to be like, yeah, I get it. But when it comes through as a consumer, unless he's that same guy, you know, the chances are it's not necessarily going to land. Uh, and that's increasingly a problem, right? So when you come into this sort of much more diverse creative environment, you tell your joke, people are like, no, I don't get that joke. Oh, I've got a different reference. Oh, that means something different to me. And you start to sort of build a much more rich and vibrant tapestry of, of ideas, starting from different standpoints, different cultures, different meanings. Uh, and it also simplifies things because you can't talk in tongues like you do in, in London. Everyone talking, you know, like never really saying the point. You have to sort of get clear, you know. And I found that to be powerful as a starting point. It forces clarity. It does. It forces clarity in your own thinking and clarity of communication. It does. It does. Communication and also just wild stuff you weren't expecting, you know, wild stuff you weren't expecting. And, I don't, and how do you explain that someone's Indian female upbringing is the catalyst for the unusual way they interpret the brief? I, I don't know how to explain that. But one thing's for sure, you're going to expect something different, aren't you? You can't expect the same thing to come from a different culture, a different gender perspective, a different uh, language, it's going to be different. Um, and the, that difference, I think, is probably one of the most powerful forces of creativity today because we, you know, we're obsessed with technology and technology is amazing because it gets us all excited and, it, and it's so closely linked to commerce. But there's only a certain amount that technology can do to keep creativity thriving. I think that Diversity is, is another type of technology that we should be using more. And, and we try to do that by. Agency Deal Masters is brought to you by Bridge, the growth-focused podcast agency. We help ambitious agencies talk to the right brands through the power of podcasting. Generate leads, win new business and increase reputation. Check out our clients' podcasts and find more resources to keep learning at bridgegrowth.org. Now, back to the show. So I, I know that you're massively motivated by diversity and creativity and innovation. It's something that really comes through in, in, your, in your communications and, um, and the work that you deliver to clients. I know it's something that you're massively 
passionate about. I'm interested in kind of where you think we are now in terms of, you know, post Black Lives Matter uh, kind of uh, furore of maybe 2020 at its height um, when George Floyd was was murdered. You had a lot of agencies coming out, especially on, on social, posting black swears and in solidarity. There was a lot of kind of virtue signaling. Um, it seems to have kind of died off now and um, we're now talking about other other things. So where are we right, right now as of April 2020? And we'll use that as a jumping off point to discuss your experiences as, as a black male in Amsterdam and kind of what the experience is writ large of other diverse people in Amsterdam and the rest of Europe. So I tell you what, I'm very, very excited about where we are today. And and that might be a surprise because, you know, the 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 movement of 2020, which was the most tragic yet exciting and liberating year of my professional career. Uh, if that can, if those two ideas can be held at the same time, which I know is slightly schizophrenic, but you know, it's it's genuinely how it was for me. You know, the the most awful tragedy broadcast around the world met with the most unbelievable life affirming response, which was our moment. Which that was our human rights moment. And we talk a lot of pie about, hey, listen, we're living through the greatest period of cultural change since the 1960s. That's our MO. The whole business is built around this idea of we never settle. And we believe that if we're living through this great period of cultural change since the 60s, we should have this like provocatively optimistic view of all these changes that are going on, including the tragedy of what caused Black Lives Matter, the murder of George Floyd. The reason it was liberating for me, though, is because it was this moment where it's like, are we allowed to talk about this now? I mean, I've got, I've got like my cis white male friends crying about how they feel so terrible and guilty and they're having this whatever that, I can't remember what we called it back then, but this sort of like uh, this guilt or this realisation, which of course is, is, is crazy and, uh, and heartfelt. Uh, and very unusual but it's a moment and but for 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 myself it's like oh we can go now we can go there now I've been for 20 years so so let me ask you this then did you think that for some reason before before this it was off the table we weren't allowed to talk about these things we didn't have permission and George Floyd gave us permission suddenly to have these discussions Yes, I think that's definitely the case. So I've been having these conversations my whole career. And you know what I told you at the beginning about me wanting to fit into London, sort of upper middle class white um, advertising scene? Right. So because of that, and because I'm mixed race, so, you know, I'm sort of like sometimes get a bit lost about where I stand here. um, There's certainly been moments in my career where you just have to turn a blind, blind eye because I need this job. I need to get paid. I need to survive in London. I don't have any financial support. I don't have any like family money. It's just me and my wits and this 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 degree I've managed to get myself through uh, and and some hustle. So I will adjust to the environment and I will turn a blind eye and it will burn me to the soul and exhaust me. But I will do that. I did do that. But then as the years went, I I sort of joined different things. There was a ethnic diversity committee at the IPA back in like 2003 that I joined with Trevor Robinson, which was 
a really way ahead of its time and it achieved nothing. Sorry, Trevor, like we, we had some great meetings, but we didn't get anywhere because there was no appetite for it back then. And so we were trying to raise a topic that no one was interested in and no, no one saw the benefit. As I moved through my career, I started to be a bit more vocal, but I've been shut down by clients, by colleagues, like shut down properly, like you better stop now because you're making us uncomfortable. Really? Yeah, absolutely. In London, in Amsterdam, all over the place. And I didn't have the voice for it either because, you know, in those moments, as we know, and you know, now we have training for this, like how to sort of uh, be a good ally and how, to, and how to articulate yourself in these moments, but there was no training at the time. So you get angry, you get upset. You know, if you hear people using racial slurs or being uh, exclus- ex- exclusionary, sometimes you don't have the right professional behavior to react in a calm, measured way. And so that was certainly me. You know, sometimes I'm trying to be calm, collected and sort of bring the research and prove people wrong. Sometimes I'm just reacting like, what the hell just happened? But either way, there wasn't permission, really. Um, with my own business, I've had great moments and I've had terrible moments, um, you know, where I feel empowered as a founder and CEO to be able to do whatever I want and say what I want. And like and, and winning through that and building good bonds with clients and colleagues and moments where I feel flattened and feel like a like a thirteen year old mixed race kid from Brighton who doesn't fit in anywhere. Uh, so so George Floyd was definitely a moment where people were asking me, Alex, what do you think? Do you want to say something? You should do something. And that was also on one side, I hated it because I'm like, f you, like yeah, now you want to talk about it. Plus, do you know how? messed up this feels you know i don't have an articulate expression of this i i didn't even realize that you were going to care about this murder like this you know i won't lie i wasn't holiday when george floyd was murdered and i saw it in the newspaper in 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 the news and i didn't think it was a thing because there's been a lot of murders this is just what happens in america (laughs) yeah this is what happens in america and black people and police yeah so I, i won't lie like my emotional reaction was not immediate I, 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 um, it was only when I got back to work and people asked me if we're going to do a black square <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> oh my goodness, what is going on? And people started asking me. So anyway, to cut a long story short, it was traumatizing. And then slowly, as I started to wrap my head around the fact that this wasn't going to be a week thing or a two week thing, I started to realize, well, we can, we can go now. We can talk, we can build the things we've been talking about building. We you have the floor. We can open up the door. We can yeah. we can say stuff now. Yeah. Um, and that's why I feel to this day that permission. that permission hasn't gone away. I'll be honest, I feel good about that. People are still open. People are, it feels from where I'm standing, which maybe is a narrow view, that we've started to build processes, systems, institutions, environments, pre- training, and et cetera, et cetera, like real stuff that is is making a difference and, and, and that makes me feel good. How, how hopeful are you? And last question about this before we move on to other things, but how hopeful are you of real meaningful change in, in our industry? I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful. Um, one of the things that happened in summer 2020 is I'm in Amsterdam, right? So Amsterdam has two industries, the local advertising industry and the international uh, agencies based in Amsterdam. And so we're part of the international crew. There's five, six sort of international, big international agencies. And we sort of like, um, and we're part of that sort of cohort. 
Um, and we do a limited amount of work in the Netherlands for the, for the Dutch market. And then you have this massive, you know, like any other country, massive local scene where they're doing Dutch advertising for the supermarkets and for the insurance companies and all that stuff. Those two industries don't really mix that much. Um, and so I was asked by a bunch of guys, uh, black guys, um, in summer 2020, if I would like to join in starting up a, a um, to try and create a program for to get more um, minorities and underrepresented um, talent into the industry. And I had a bit of a sort of um, a wobble moment because as much as I wanted to be a part of that, I was like, yeah, but I'm not. I'm not in here. I'm, I'm sort of like my 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 power um, is is sort of in this ethereal international space where I talk on these sort of international platforms and and that's where I don't feel confident about. I wouldn't even know where to find local talent. In fact, when you ask me that question, I feel like I'm part of the problem, you know. <laughs> and um, and they said, no, no, don't worry. Like like, but then I sort of reminded myself, like, okay, Alex, maybe you are part of the problem. Maybe this is your calling to to bridge that gap. Um, culturally, if you're talking about culture as a priority, and go to those places where those black and brown people and kids live and work and start to build the bridges, um, not just in a sort of hypothetical way, but in a real way. So we went down into Southeast Amsterdam, South Oost, where, you know, that's where our people are. And, and that's where the communities are. It's in the outskirts of Amsterdam. And suddenly it's like, oh my goodness. And we started working with the, the youth workers there to build this platform uh, to build a program that to this day, it's in the second year now, we did 25 candidates in the first year, about 75% of them got jobs, including at Pi. And in the second year, uh, they've got even more candidates and even more industry engagement. And there's diverse talent working in agencies, including our own to this day with paid jobs because of that program, because of that moment in history. So I consider that to be a massive win and that's not the only one. So I'm I'm, I'm excited about um, the changes that are happening. Yeah, yeah. So I know that you've got an amazing culture um, at, at, at We Are Pi, but so many agencies talk about their amazing culture and it just goes down to one of those kind of management tropes that so many agencies kind of, kind of band around. What does it practically mean for you to have a great culture? What does that actually mean? How does that manifest day to day? Oh, man. Well... I mean, I think that the thing we've learned over the years, the thing I've learned over the years is that like, um, and, I, and I almost don't want to say this because it's too easy to say and, and, and it's never provable from on a podcast, but culture is our thing. And the culture of the business of our company is half of it. And the other half of it is how much we're contributing and participating in culture at large. And I feel like those two things together have been the special source for We Are Pi. And, and in the last few years, we tried to sort of be a bit more specific about how we engage with what culture at large and specific about how we build our culture internally, but it's been a red thread through our, through our whole journey. So if I'm talking about culture inside Pi, we found our business on Pi Day. It was a mistake, it was a coincidence. Uh, there were three of us, we thought it was a cool name and Pi Day was just this random thing that we stumbled across as we registered the business. Um, the second thing we randomly stumbled across after founding the name uh, was this idea that pi is a number that never settles uh, and, and it never settles into a repeating pattern. We love that. As soon as we found it, it was a young, it was a young pirate that, that first noticed that um, when we were sort of trying to do our branding about 10 years ago. 
And we love that, like a, a number that never ends and settles into a repeating pattern. Like if there's anything we want to avoid, it's settling into the same pattern. And, and that's sort of, as much as it's a slogan and a, and a, and a sort of, and a, and a, essentially a corporate brand sort of label we give ourselves, I, I do believe it to be true and something that we promise to uphold. And then we go about doing that, you know. So yes, let's be honest, uh, creative innovation is one way of doing it. Diversity inclusion is another way of doing it. And uh, being part of an active part of society is, is a third way of doing it. And, and in the end, the, the DEI stuff we've talked about, like we, 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 we try hardest, we're not perfect. Don't get me wrong. Like it doesn't make it any easier being a black owned business to, to, to be great at this. Like it's, we still have to fight for it every day, both in the work, behind the camera, in the team, et cetera. It's, it's, we have more confidence to, in the space, but it doesn't make it necessarily easier. Uh, creative innovation, you know, that's that's the culture we're, tri- we're striving for. Like, how do we do the big bang wow thing that's never been done before is generally our goal, whether it be a strategic thing, as in a strategy that changes the game for a, a Nike or an Amazon or a Heineken, or or a, or a creative execution of something just blockbuster and, and sort of, you know, otherworldly. And that drives the culture. At the end of the day, if you're trying to innovate creatively, you end up attracting people that are trying to do the same thing. Our business is pretty basic in the sense that we're only an international creative innovation business. We don't do any um, retail, uh, behind the scenes, boring work. Um, we're not a local business in that way. So we only thrive if we're culturally on, on target. We don't have some sort of secret back, back-end business that's actually paying the bills. Uh, so it keeps us honest <laughs> and it also makes us uh, uh, put some pressure. And then um, the, the other part of culture, as I said, is, 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 is engaging society. Like we, we are either trying to create um, different uh, initiatives like Plus Plus One, the, the, the training initiative I mentioned earlier for, um, for diversity in Holland, or uh, supporting other initiatives like Blackstrat, founded by AO, Young Strategies out of London, uh, big up AO, um, which you know we sort of helped with the branding, helped him with some, um, helped him with mentorship, you know. But that's a big contribution to the industry. Blackstrat is like 150, I think, strategists connecting, first time in history. Um, that has blowback on our culture. We've got strategists of Pi who are in the Blackstrat group. That's the safe space. Um, you've got Creative Jam session founded by Amena, big up Amena, which is like the first uh, sort of. Uh, you know, diversity inclusion event series in in Amsterdam for the international community. That's a beautiful Sunday afternoons, like chicken and wine, perfect environment for for sort of like again sending our pirates over there. You know, we've got the pie session, the monthly inspiration session, which is set up by the DEI committee. So you just got to keep you got to have tangible things inside and outside, and those two things flow off each other and. We, sometimes we should be doing a bit less because we spread ourselves too thin. Sometimes we, we, we realize we should be doing more and, and, and doubling down. But the truth is that culture keeps us honest because really our business is defined by it. Absolutely love that. I know we're running short on time, but I can't let you go without asking our favorite questions that we ask everyone when they come on the show. So I'm going to ask you our favorite questions now and I'm, I'm excited to get some of your answers um before we before we end we're gonna have to get you back on the show because there's so much here that i've just scratched the surface of first question tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience (laughs) 
Well, I mean, first of all, I fail so often uh, that uh, it should be known that um, I, I, I mean, I'm an oversharer. <laughs> so sometimes Share away. My, 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 my partner's like, Alex, stop telling everyone about that. And I'm like, people need to know, man, like, you know, this whole like, you know, starting from the bottom, now I'm here story is just such, it's too easy, you know, it's too easy. Yeah. So um, I'd say that one of the, one of the biggest areas that I failed in um, starting out the business was uh, I failed to have a vision for what would be great about the business. So I told you that like we were in our previous agency, we were comfortable, we were happy, it's a great environment, um, no, no existential reason to leave, uh, except for complacency and a sort of like willingness to do more and different things. So what that led to was a sort of a six month period after leaving of sort of saying, hey, what's we up high? And it's like, well, it's different from what we did before <laughs> and 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 they said oh yeah yeah great and people sort of like that they're like oh yeah 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 you're you're an underdog now you're changing the game you're 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 going up against the mainstream so that works for a few months and then slowly people start saying what's we are pie and i said like, yeah man it's like it's non-traditional it's different it's like you know you don't know what's going to happen now we are pie man <laughs> and, then, and, then, <laughs> and then and then you slowly start realizing that that doesn't mean anything that don't mean yeah, anything. There's you know, no substance. All we're doing, yeah. is, there's no substance. What are we going to do? Not talking about what we're not going to do. And so I got stuck in this trap for too long, defining ourselves on the things we aren't, instead of defining ourselves on the things we are. And I think that um, that's a learning that, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's definitely a failure because it, what it did is it slowed down our initial growth. Uh, and and it probably it probably sort of put me out a fish out of water because I'm an enthusiastic person that was trying to sort of become an entrepreneur and trying to be like a badass and talk about like you know going up up against the mainstream. Mm. But that was not really my happy place. My happy place is like we're doing this. It's badass. It's the best. It's different. Da-da. So and I love it. Yeah. So big 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 uh, big learning there about you know figure out what you're going up against for sure. Figure out the problem. You know which we talk about in marketing a lot. What's the problem? What's the problem? But then figure out what's what you bring to the table? What's the solution? Don't be complacent. And I try to tell that to the pirates. Like, I know we're not, you know, people giving me feedback all the time. I'm like, guys, I want to hear the feedback. I want to hear how we can improve. But I also want to hear your ideas. Mm. I also want to know what's bigger and better that we could be doing that's uh, that's that's tangible. Um, and try to encourage other entrepreneurs to do the same. Love that. The mentors question. Um, who's influenced the way that you think about creativity, innovation, agency growth? Um, they could be traditional business leaders. They could be people just in mainstream culture, whatever. So, um, well, I mean, if you're going to take it back, where do we start? If you're going to take it back, then, you know, <laughs> I mean, my creative inspiration comes from Biggie, you know, that's, that, that, that's, that's the original storyteller in my life. Right, uh, and so for all the youngsters out there, that won't mean very much. Yeah. But um, you know, great storyteller. Late nineties, man. I was hanging off every yeah. word. I was hanging off every word. That the ultimate storyteller to this day. And he was a baby. He, he was, was a, a child. Man. He was twenty, twenty-one, yeah, twenty-two. Yeah, honestly, I'm and and and. I went back. I watched that documentary they put. I think it was on Netflix recently about him, and 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 it was great. But sadly, it was also just a reminder that it was so limited footage of his of his of his creative journey. There was, you know, pretty much it was piecing together stuff I could find on YouTube already. 
but yeah, that was, um, I don't know, like just in terms of the swagger and the lyrical flow and yeah. just the storytelling, the confidence, yeah, the confidence the and the sort of just badassery just... that, you know, obviously is not me in any way in terms of upbringing or, or, <laughs> or, or, or lyrical skills, even though I try sometimes to fail. Um, but that's an early inspiration. I've had other inspirations. I tried my eight-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my mum, uh, my mum and dad, a big inspiration for me. Like, um, my mum is very artistic. Uh, you know, she was a teacher, um, and and then and then she sort of like went back to school and did art um, degree later in life, and then and then sort of started her own uh, homemade cards business. And so I've always watched her. She she remade her life based on a passion. And to this day, she's doing that, and and it, you know, and it just, it just reminds me like, oh, if you find something you love, it doesn't have to be work. And and I wouldn't say I've got there fully yet. Like the, I'm running a business with you know 40 plus people, so you know, of course, I love it, but it's it's not as pure as that. But I always aspire to be uh, to get to that point where it's so simple like that and so pure and so creative. And my dad, you know, like he he runs he's run clubs his whole life. You know, he's a he's an ent- he's a he's a club promoter. Uh, and so it's all about salsa dancing and reggae and, and all of that sort of world for him. And, you know, if I put those things together, that's, that's where it all began. And then of course, later in life, I've had professional mentors and stuff, but I don't think they've beaten those three inspirations. Biggie and your mom and dad, (laughs) not at all. How can they? They can't live up to those three people. It's impossible. What did you think of the Kanye documentary, by the way? Phenomenal. Did you watch it? Phenomenal. Brilliant, wasn't it? Brilliant. I mean, look, uh, since... Change your perspective. Since since I forgot to book Kanye's first album. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, he's never forgiven you for that. I know, I know. I can feel it. I think he mentioned it. I feel like it's... I think he mentioned it. I feel like it's affected his later career. Sorry, Kanye. Um, look, I, I was a massive college dropout fan. Like that whole, mm. that that represented a whole opening up of what it could be to be young and black and sort of not such a, like a hardcore gangster and all that stuff. So that was liberating and sound was incredible. But, you know, I won't lie since, since I think I fell out of love with Kanye about the same time as Obama, you know, <laughs> like, oh, you know, like that sort of that moment of like, give him a chance. Yeah. Well, you know, I just, I've, unrealistic expectations. I've had lots of discussions with lots of people who took convinced me different. So the documentary, I have to agree, was groundbreaking insight into his earlier life. And I'm like, wow, he was really going for it. Like he was, I mean, that's those scenes where he's in the office at Rockefeller and no one's listening to him. Brilliant. Unbelievable. And he's he's playing his demo and people are like, yeah, whatever. Unbelievable. <laughs> so yeah, that is a, a sort of an insight into a creative genius. Uh, for sure. What do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? Well, I do two things. Uh, I live in Amsterdam, which means that there's a lot of staircase in my apartment. Um, <laughs> I have two kids, which I have to carry around. So those are the main things I do. <laughs> Aside from Weights that, I try to get out and walking. A, a lot of running. Um, I do, well, a lot. A couple of times a week, I a decent run. And then recently, I've been doing, um, trying new stuff. Uh, I'm not a very good team sports guy. I used to be a sprinter. I used to be a hurdler um, back in the day, but you can't really do that in adult life. Um, so um, I've started rock climbing. Okay. Just a, a, a sort of, just a whole different, you know, just different scene. Yeah. I'll tell you what's funny about rock climbing Amsterdam. There's no, there's no hills in Holland, right? So that's a fact. So funnily enough, such a diverse scene. I was amazed. Hmm. You know, I've, it's, it's really interesting. Um, so yeah, I've enjoyed that. Uh, with, with some running in the kids. 
Interesting. It's not very diverse back back in England. No, no, uh, no, no. I have to not tell you that. I can imagine. Um, interesting. So what advice would you give to a young person or millennial who wants to start their career in a creative agency? Well, I mean, kick down the door, but then you've got to work really hard. And I don't mean like that classic thing of like, you know, you're not going to get given anything in life. You've got to just work hard for it. I'm just talking in general. Like, I think that, of course, we've been through this period in the last few years, um, through the pandemic, and even before that, where mental health is a top priority and, uh, and burnouts, which is something that's been a big thing in Holland for many years, because you have a very sort of delicate um, work culture here. So people are sensitive to this stuff. But I think but the idea of burnouts becomes sort of popularized everywhere, um, which is good in the sense it's good that we recognize the sort of the pressures of modern life and work. At the same time, I think that where, when I'm sitting here today, I'm like, what's the only thing that got me here? And it wasn't privilege. And it wasn't like, I'm not like the smartest person in the room. Uh, it was just working my ass off. <laughs> like, and so, you know, as much as you've got a sweat, you've got, yeah. And I don't mean hustle culture. I'm not, I'm, I'm not into that. I'm not into like spreading yourself too thin, but it's just like, have a goal and go after it. And, and of course, protect your mental health, but, talk, but, but of course don't work like a dog, but it does take a lot of hard work to get anywhere in this world, in this life. Um, and so you, you, you gotta be prepared to, to work hard in this industry. Like there are plenty of other industries where, you know, where creativity is not a factor. So it's a different type of work, right? You know, you, you, creativity requires you to sort of really push it. Um, and so uh, I'm always encouraging people to try and find that balance, but at the same time- Got to put in the hours. You've got to put the hours in, yeah. Is there any industry where you can be successful without putting in the hours? Um, I doubt there is any industry where you can be successful without putting in the hours, unless it's like, unless you get find yourself uh, on the right side of some sort of investment bank. Um, or, or you're, or, an, yeah. or the, it's the industry called born into money. Um, right, right. but I think that the creative industries by definition is always an uphill battle, right? Creativity, of course, is a competitive advantage, but it takes a lot of evidence to prove that on a daily basis to clients. Um, and so you're getting yourself into an industry which gives you a lot back because you're, you're in a cultural context. But by definition, you, you know, it's, you've got to sell that culture. You've got to sell that creativity. So I think it's, um, it's a particularly uh, uh, challenging environment uh, to, 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 to master. Once you master it, you, 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 can, you, can, you can navigate it. And I've, I've, I've learned how to navigate it and enjoy it a lot more the older I've got. And my final question, Alex, what does it you know about growing an agency today that you wish you knew in 2011? Oh, wow. I mean, I won't lie. Our business is eleven years old, so I took the long road, you know, um, which is me which meant which means I've enjoyed it along the way, right? I've, I've had a lifestyle business to start with, you know, where I'm just exploring and I'm sort of like telling people what it's not, um, through to a sort of catching a bit of wind and, and having getting some momentum. Um, but what I would say is, make a plan. You know, like it's it, it sounds like the simplest thing to say. But most people start businesses without a plan. Like they might have a talent or a skill or a, or like some like audacious goal, which, you know, everyone likes talking about that these days. But an actual plan for getting there, like steps, 
is much rarer than you think. And I, and I talk to a lot of young entrepreneurs and I'm like, guys, like get it down on paper. What's the plan? What are you trying to achieve here? Uh, and, and that plan has to have that sort of, like I say, that big, hairy, audacious goal. It has to have that nice visionary thing. It has to have the skills, but it also has to have some commercial component, you know, because in the end, uh, if it doesn't make money, you're bankrupt. And so um, I'd say that I took a bit too long getting my plan down. But once we did, it's just a lot more fun to, st to start, you know, chipping away at, the, at, that, at that really clear goal and, and starting to, um, to, uh, to build something of, of real value. Love that. Great place to end. Final, final question. What's your best Biggie track? <laughs> I've got a story to tell. <laughs> oh, great, great answer. Great answer. <laughs> love it. Oh, man, I love that track. That's the ultimate one. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much, man. Take it easy. We have been speaking with Alex Bennett Grant. He is currently the CEO and founder at We Are Pie. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 170 such conversations we've had with world-class leaders in the agency space. Follow us on LinkedIn, head over to agencydomasters.com and sign up to our weekly email newsletter to make sure you never miss an episode. We would be unable to do the show that our very own deal masters. Tyler Baller is our booker. Christoph Boaszczyk is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Alibaba. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters. This episode was brought to you by Worldwide Partners, a network of over 75 independent marketing services agencies from over 40 countries, delivering outstanding work for some of the biggest brands in the world. In this episode, I sat down with John Harris, the CEO of Worldwide Partners, one of the nicest men in the agency world that you will ever meet. In this four-part series, John and I discuss what makes Worldwide Partners different to the traditional holding groups, which brands are best for the network to work with, um, how the agencies and the network actually use the Worldwide Partners story to attract global clients, their criteria for selecting which agencies actually get to join and which don't. It's an absolutely fascinating mini-series. So please enjoy my fascinating bite-sized chat with the CEO of Worldwide Partners, John Harris. So, John, collaboration between agencies in the network is really what matters when it comes to delivering great work for clients, as we know, and helping them to grow the agency. In, in your opinion, what drives really good collaboration between the agencies? Well, I think first and foremost, the egos are checked at the door. There's no one that's jockeying for lead role um, because when a collaboration comes to the group, everybody realizes and recognizes the value of the opportunity that's come from one agency to another. And so when I, when I was at the holding companies and I spent almost 15 years there, so I have the, the license and credibility to talk about the view from that side of the, of the industry. If I called the MD in the UK and said I had an opportunity for ex-client the first question out of her or his mouth was usually who owns the strategy who owns the creative and how much money is our office going to make the first question when one of our agencies the first question is asked when one of our agencies calls another agency is how can we help 
it's in our name. It's worldwide partners. And so we have a, we have a, you know, we're kind of operating in a very open source model. We, we look to access the best talents from across our network that meet the brief. It's communication. It's sharing of knowledge. It is responsiveness. It is accountability. And perhaps most importantly, it's gratitude. It's not overly complicated. It's not the magic in the process. It's the magic of the people. When, I, when we were together in London, I said to the group that collaboration is the new marketing currency. I don't know if you remember me having that slide up there. I presented it again in Las Vegas six months later, and I, I shifted it again. I said, the new marketing currency is trust. Trust between brands and consumers, trust between agencies and agencies. And your podcast is all about growth. For independent agencies, I believe that scale is the fastest way to drive top-line growth. And we've seen it in the M&A space. More and more independent agencies are looking to scale through partnerships. Um, and it, that's an agency model that clients are welcoming and they're embracing. Scaling your footprint, scaling your capabilities or expertise through acquisition is one way to do it. That takes time and money. Neither one of those are always in abundance. So if there is an alternative of scaling through a global network of independent agencies who've been scaling each other's business for over 80 years. So it, again, it's not complicated, but it is a, it is a commitment to working with one another and ultimately a trust that drives the effectiveness of our collaboration. Let's talk a little bit about Odysseus Arms. Libby Brockoff was a recent guest on our, on our podcast. Um, she was fantastic. Um, as you know, she co-founded Mother and has just won just a string of amazing awards, just a fantastic, fantastic person and, and, and great background in history. Mm -hmm. um, they've been part of, of WPI for about five years now, I believe. And um, they're also a, a shareholder as well. Um, and, and they've had a, just a ton of successful collaborations with other agencies within the network and across the world. How does Odysseus Arms make WPI part of their agency story? Well, I talked earlier about thinking of the network as an extension of your agency. And when they are a creative only agency, 40 people uh, and 40 employees now, and they always use the example of, we think about worldwide partners as a pantry, right? We're a creative only shop. And we walk into the pantry and we say, for this opportunity, for this client, we need some media expertise. And they have had some incredible partnerships with R&R partners out of Las Vegas, um, beating holding company agencies with R&R's media capabilities. Now, R&R is a full service agency with 300 employees. They can do everything Odysseus Arms does, but in this capacity, they realized their role was to be a media provider for this client. And they beat holding company agencies. And there are not many environments where a 300 person agency would play a supporting role to a 40 person agency. And, and, and it's, it's been a magnificent partnership and very fruitful for both, both agencies and most importantly, great work for the client. Uh, we saw Libby two weeks ago, um, and she was looking for an expert in social emotional learning. Uh, they had a pitch for a client that needed that expertise. We connected her with Jane Asher at 23 red, another one of our partners you're speaking with, um, who had, who had experience working there. She also needed to understand production parameters in Taiwan for another piece of business they recently won. So my point is, she looks at the network and says, here's what I'm good at. What talents around the network do I need to access to bring to 
my client and to my team. And and in the collaborative nature of our our network, it just works seamlessly. So I I, I see them as you know we, almost the poster child for how to leverage uh, complementary skill sets in an effective way on your clients' behalf. You are listening to Agency Dealmasters, brought to you by Bridge.